Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is game composer and producer, Dren McDonald. First thing, there are some things about the brain that I think every musician should know. In a book entitled The Musical Brain by Lois Fard, she notes five different things that are really important in learning and perfecting our instrument. The first one is we're as hardwired for music as we are for language. Infants are actually born with musical abilities. They can detect a missing downbeat at the age of two to three days and begin moving to music as soon as they have control of their limbs. They prefer singing to speaking and can recognize variations in complex rhythms at about six months, and they have a very good memory for music. Problem is that many of these abilities are lost by the age of one because they're just not nurtured. Second thing is that practicing drives brain neuroplasticity. The more we practice, the more our brain changes. These changes are called neuroplasticity. It's a good thing. There are some ways of practicing that lead to stronger brain wiring or greater neuroplasticity. And that means we get better musical skills and stronger memory for music. Third thing is that practicing happens in the brain, not so much in the muscles. You hear the music in your mind and then imagine the movements that it takes to create that sound. So you're feeling the movements in your mind. Research has shown that we practice this way and all the areas of the brain that would normally be involved when we physically practice are still active. So if we imagine making music, our brain is actually practicing. And the result is nearly the same as if we physically put the instrument on. I guess that means that we don't have to spend as many hours practicing if we just can do it in our minds. The fourth thing is that sleep may be one of the most important practice strategies of all. When we sleep, we reinforce the idea of practice in the brain, not in the muscles. It's been found that several stages of the sleep cycle are vitally important for encoding and then consolidation of memory, our motor skill memory, as well as for encoding and consolidation of our memory of a particular piece of music. Lack of sleep impairs both our initial learning as well as memory for a piece of music. And finally, the visual in music is just as important as learning and making music. Our brain learns by watching someone else play and then develops a template for that motion and for the sound that motion creates. So observation and listening are really important when it comes to teaching or learning an instrument or a voice. Over the last few decades, we've added a great deal of information about the mind and the body and how they work together. What this may mean is that we can spend more time practicing without actually going near an instrument, and that can be a good thing. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. That's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, 
You can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, artificial intelligence, or AI, is really hot these days, and it's hyped in a lot of different ways, and some of them are negative, unrightfully so. But that being said, there are a number of terms that are being thrown around that are thought of as interchangeable, but they're really not. For instance, AI, machine learning, neural networks, and deep learning. People think they're interchangeable. No, they're not. AI is when a machine is taught to think like a human, Now, this just could be one little thing of how a human works, and that becomes artificial intelligence. Machine learning goes down one level. It's still artificial intelligence, but what we're doing is we're training the computer to actually learn something, but we have to physically train it. For instance, if we feed in a number of pictures of dogs, after a while it begins to understand what a dog is, and then it knows when a cat shows up that it's different. The thing is, we trained it that way. When we go one step further, we get into neural networks. Neural networks don't have to be specifically trained. They train themselves, but they need a lot of information to do so. These are called large language models. The more information it gets, the better it is at doing what it has to do. So a neural network basically has at least three layers. And if we go beyond three, it becomes something called deep learning. Deep learning means that it can do several things at the same time. So for instance, like with ChatGPT, if we ask it a question, it understands what that question is by comparing the words, and it understands what's going to come next or what should come next after certain words. But if we go another step and we ask it to translate into another language, then it's actually doing another job on top of that. And it can do others and others and hundreds simultaneously, and that becomes deep learning. So what does this have to do with audio and music? We're starting to see apps that are making top lines for music, that are mimicking music, that are giving us chord suggestions. And in the audio world, there's a number of really good apps out there, and many of them have been using AI for quite some time. For instance, online mastering, Lander and eMaster. Both of them are getting a lot better, and the reason why was, first of all, they were trained on really good models. This is what a mastered song in different genres should sound like. But after millions and millions of songs being submitted, it gets smarter and smarter and smarter. So as a result, this is better today than it was five years ago. Sonable has a number of smart apps. They have Smart Comp, they have Smart Reverb, they have Smart EQ. And there it's figuring out exactly what the EQ what the compression, what the reverb should be depending upon what it sees for input, how it interprets the song. Accusonics has the ERA bundle, and this is noise reduction. And most of the noise reduction software and apps and plugins, they all are based on deep learning, and that's how they can do their job so well. And then finally from Isotope, who are pioneers in using AI in their plugins, we have Neutron and Ozone. And in both cases, what we're doing is we're training that. We're saying, this is the model. Can you make it sound like this track? and it does a remarkable job of doing so. So don't be afraid of AI. Don't be afraid of machine learning, deep learning, any of those things. AI is a tool. 
it gets us in the ballpark, but it still needs a human to take it to the next level. The human gives it the strategy. The human gives it the personality. But AI does get us in the ballpark, and it does it pretty well. Look for my AI for music production course and book coming out in a few months. My guest this week is composer and producer Dren McDonald, who's done everything from experimental indie rock to video game music, string quartet chamber music, to film and VR animation soundtracks. He's worked with game studios and publishers such as Valve Corporation, Ubisoft, Glue Mobile, DNA Hasbro, Romero Games, Zynga, Tapulus, and many others. And he's been nominated for awards for his soundtrack, music, and sound design work 16 times and has won five times. Dren also created music and audio designs for AR and VR experiences at Facebook and taught at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He's released several original game soundtrack releases on NerdTrack's recordings, as well as instrumental recordings for appearing records. During the interview, we spoke about how he got into video games, directing voiceovers for games, how sound design is different for games than film, working on A&R Audio for Facebook, his new album built around hundreds of guitar tracks, and much more. I spoke with Dren via Zoom from a studio in the Bay Area. Let's start off with your background first and you getting into the music business and how all that happened. Yeah, a long and windy road um, that was uh, not planned. <laughs> I think this is true for a lot of people who are in the business, probably. Um, well, let's see. I guess, you know, um, I was very involved in high school in bands and bands and a jazz band. And I was fortunate enough to have a really great jazz band director who was Chuck Wackerman, who you might know the name. Uh, the, the sons all um, played in, in, with various artists. And I was lucky enough to have him as my jazz band teacher. It was very encouraging and um, and uh, kind of an entryway into the music business, uh, really. Uh, he introduced me to a lot of people. I ended up playing in a band with one of his sons. And then moving ahead, I didn't, I started college as a music major, but didn't finish as a music major. Went to Long Beach State, actually. And I just didn't really like the music program there. I ended up going to Golden West College because they had a 24-track studio at the time with two-inch tape. And, you know, I thought, this is fantastic. I can actually go in and use this facility and learn how to engineer. So I, I, I started learning that there at Golden West College, then came back to Long Beach State and finished as actually an English major. Anyway, trying to keep this short, but then I, I, I was in a band. Uh, we did lots of tours. We toured uh, Europe a few times and, and uh, the United States, South by Southwest, and did all those things. And because I had a band, we couldn't get signed, so I started a label because we were kind of a weird band. At the time, it was uh, that band, which was called Giant Ant Farm. It was very much like a, a weird klezmer, Eastern European, Tom Waits meets pop music kind of thing. Uh, I mean, we had trombone, clarinet, accordion stand-up bass um i played acoustic guitar and banjo and sang and so they're pop songs but all couched in very unusual instrumentation so well how's a label going to sign that no one wanted to sign that so uh <laughs> so i started a label um kind of kept that going for a while and then that turned into a music merchandising company that i kind of 
kept running and I, and I worked. I, I ran that so I could have a job that would fund the label. And um, we worked with a lot of various artists like The Residents or um, uh, the Anticon hip-hop label, uh, Peaches. We worked with all sorts of different um, artists. And then at a certain point, this must be in the early 2000s, I realized that CDs were not going to be bought and sold on the internet too much longer. And I found uh, a, a new avenue and decided to get into video game um, music. And I had some friends who were already, they were already working in video games and um, just started asking them about how to, how to get into it and started going to events like uh, GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference. It happens every year uh, in San Francisco. Started going to that and meeting some people. And um, because I had this experience of playing weird music like I did in my band and um, having lots of different um, knowledge of genres and how to record them um, and what kind of instruments to use and, you know, all, all that kind of knowledge seemed to lot in well into a career in writing music and making sounds too for video games and so then i just started working in games um that's a whole in-depth story but you know everything from audio directing to composing to sound designing and um, running my own business uh my own game audio business then eventually uh working for uh at the time it was facebook and then um making interactive music and sounds for Facebook and working on their library. They have a music library. So I was creating music for that, uh, creating music and sounds for uh, VR and AR, which is pretty exciting. And I'm no longer there, but now I'm just kind of doing my own uh, contracting and whatnot and working on various VR projects at the moment, along with, uh, you know, uh, releasing a bunch of different records and things over the years. So I don't know, there's a, long and short of it yeah it's a good start good um, <laughs> all right good so let's go back to video games and you getting into it so what was the first one that you did and what did you have to do let's see i think the very first one i did i don't even know if it's still on steam but it was a steam game called uh tommy tronic and all i did on that was just some music uh somehow i ended up in contact with this uh, fellow in uh, the UK somewhere who needed music for a game. And, um, and I just started cranking out some music and went through iterations with him on the music. And I, I don't know, I think I created eight or 10 tracks for that particular game. Really simple. There was no interactive aspects to that game. It was just, here's a level, here's a, a music that needs to, a piece of music that needs to loop. And that was all that was, there was to that. And then, Soon after, I started really um, doing a lot of work in mobile games, which was a lot more, um, a lot more in depth as far as well. We were working a lot on the Tap Tap Revenge series, which was one of the early hits on iOS, and it was a rhythm game, very similar to Guitar Hero or Rock Band, one of those. But you were tapping on your phone in rhythm, and we were actually kind of uh, well, we were creating MIDI maps for these. Um, tempo maps for for the songs and then we would even edit the songs to create more exciting gameplay sometimes we would get maybe eight minute long edm pieces and we had to condense it down into three minutes and making an exciting uh level to play and so we were kind of game designing and audio uh editing all at the same time but those are some of the early things that worked on and then 
ended up doing a lot of a lot of work in mobile as that was developing. It seems to me that people that get into doing something, a job in gaming, wind up doing a lot more. And it's almost like, oh, you can do that? Well, do this for me too. And it seems that's been the case with you. Yes, um, that is very much the case. And that was one reason I really started working on my sound design shops at the time. Because I, as I got to know more mobile game developers, some of the companies were starting out small. This is the rise of Zynga and the rise of many of these small, big companies now, but they were small at the time. And um, sometimes they just wanted one person to just deal with everything. So quite often that would be that would just be me. I would be the audio director for the whole the whole project, and um, and so that meant I had to get my sound design chops together and then you know oversee the music, and then I started getting into directing VO and doing that sort of thing, which. To this day, still is not my favorite job in the world, but I can do it. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so yeah, yeah, you end up just wearing a lot of hats the more the more you're around. Okay, so let's just talk about directing VO for a second, because I, I find that <laughs> I find that fascinating. I know how important it is, but I also know how difficult it can be. So, what? How did you learn how to do it? And then, when did you get to the point where you thought, "Okay, I'm pretty good at this now," even though I don't like it? <laughs> I don't know if I'm still very. I don't know if I'm very good at it. <laughs> I think I've watched good people work, and I think, yeah, those people are really good. They should be doing it. So, it's still one of those things that if I can get someone else to do it, who's really good at it and really loves it, I'll try and and, and get them if the if that's there in the budget. But um, I think that when you start out, at least for me, it was really important to have the, uh, since these were for games, it was really important to have the game designer there because they had usually written the dialogue. They'd usually written the lines that we were, we were, um, that we were, uh, recording. So it was really important to have them there and give us some ideas as to the inflection and, and, and the tone that they were trying to get. Um, a lot of times, especially in early mobile games, you didn't have long lines of dialogue, so you know they could they were pretty short and could be interpreted a lot of ways. So having having at least somebody there was really helpful. Um, and then I think getting a system for putting in markers as you're recording, and then coming up with a way to quickly determine which seemed like the best take at the time was real important because you can end up going through this stuff and and uh, it can take a long time. So if you can identify that pretty quickly and you, your ear gets pretty good, pretty good at it, you know, uh, after, after doing a lot of it, um, that can really help. It's like comping vocals, really. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just... A second here for sound design. So you had to learn how to do it. And I'm thinking that sound design for games is different than sound design for film. Am I wrong? No, you're you're right. I mean a lot of the same a lot of the same principles apply, but the big difference is it's interactive. And um so if you have a gunshot, let's say, if you're playing a game, you don't want to hear the same gunshot over and over and over again the same sample um that will really ruin the immersion of the of the the 
project with the game, um, and it really just feels like you're just playing a game, and it's not. It's a lot more fun if it sounds real. Um, maybe Gunshot's a bad example, but uh, it doesn't have to sound real, but it has to sound, uh, there has to be variations. So what you learn to do is kind of create different variations of, uh, of, a, of a sound. And in the most basic level, you know, maybe you have, maybe you have, a, let's call it a popping a bubble sound in a game. And you create three or four different versions of that popping a bubble sound, and those can randomize. That's like sort of the most basic version of it. And then as you use uh, audio middleware like FMOD or WISE, um, then you can start to change the random, uh, you can randomize your volume, you can randomize your pitch, and start introducing some more elements in there that change it a little bit even more. And for some uh, bigger titles, AAA games that have a lot more resource for their, for their um, sounds, you even get into having layers of those sounds that can randomize uh, their pitch and variations and, and then also pick a different sample to use. So it's always combining different samples and always providing different randomizations. So that's kind of the biggest uh, change between you know, say film, TV, and, and games is you have to, that interactive quality that you have to account for and keep things sounding fresh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then you talked about Facebook, and that must yeah. have been a big change jumping from what you were doing to games to suddenly this huge company. And, and it's a small division in a huge <laughs> company that that's little known, actually, right? Right, yeah. Uh, I mean... Um, I think before all the layoffs in November, we had 130 people on that sound team, which seems absurd if you compare it to, say, a big game studio or something. You know, I think Blizzard maybe has 40 or 50 people at the most, you know. Uh, so, you know, we, we had a huge amount of people. Um, but, yeah, a very, very different experience. Um, you know, it, it's sort of that, that, uh, that phrase, you know, um, flying the airplane while you're building it is very true in the tech world because you don't know how things are going to end up happening. Uh, for example, we were working on uh, this device called the Portal, which was a, a an, it was basically like a video call device. And we were integrating some of the AR um, software into that. And there was a really nice feature called Storytime where grandparents could have a video call with their their grandkid. And rather than just having that awkward kind of, we're on a video call together and then no one knows what to do, they would be telling stories. So you could tell the story of the three little pigs and then the grandparents would have, you know, the face of the wolf on their, you know, an AR mask or an AR mask of the pigs or whatever. And there was little animations. And so we were adding audio to that. And I think up we had been months in development, and then at a certain point, we're like, is the portal even going to have sound? We don't know. It might not even have sound. So, you know, you just run into these weird issues where, you know, uh, you've been working on something, and all of a sudden it just blows up, or it goes well, and, and, and it ships the way it's supposed to. So you just you find yourself running into these problems when you're trying to create uh, software for hardware that hasn't shipped yet. So um, that's a tricky proposition sometimes. Was all this an immersive? 
uh, immersive sound, like that division? Immersive audio. Was, was this all, everything you were doing, was it, it for immersive delivery? Oh, well, so the AR stuff, oddly enough, we call it AR, um, but it was basically all mono. So this is all mono playing out of a single speaker on the portal device. Um, so that AR stuff, even though it was very immersive visually, audio-wise, we were only working in mono, which is crazy. And I remember just trying to get left and right channels into the Spark software, you know, that we were using for AR, um, you know, several years ago, and it was always a challenge. So that stuff never went uh, to a point where it was spatial. It was uh, always frustrating because we we had these VR tools, like we had. Uh, uh, Facebook had acquired a company called Two Big Ears with my, my friends Varun and Abesh had created this um, software that ended up becoming the 360 encoder that uh, that was used for Facebook and VR. And so we had that at our disposal, but we just never got it into the AR space, but it's in the VR space. And so eventually I started working on a lot of VR projects and um, and that was all very much creative, creative for immersive um, listening because you're listening back in a headset. Is that how you first get into immersive? Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, working in the, in the VR stuff because uh, we were we were working in lots of different with lots of different tools, everything from Unity to proprietary tools to uh, tools like Quill, which is a free animation VR program um, that used to be owned by Facebook, but then they sold it back to the the person who had developed it. And um, and so we were using a lot of different tools to get to the same sort of results. But um, yeah, uh, eventually with some of those Quill product, projects that we were doing, um, these were like kind of long form animations in VR, so 360 VR animations. Um, and we would be doing things like for the music mixes, we would mix in Atmos and then re-render those Atmos mixes as binaural and put them in a project. Because we didn't have room in the project to actually, well, the project wouldn't play back an Atmos file, wouldn't play back an ADM, but it could play back uh, an ambisonic file. But it didn't make sense uh, narratively to have an ambisonic music file in there, so we just left it as binaural and uh, made it a little bit easier to mix the sound design and uh, dialogue into the end of the projects when we had up an oral um, music mix. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. So there's a lot of controversy in how you should mix music for immersive. Without going into those, I'm just curious if there was any direction of how you should do it for AR, VR. Um, there was no direction. We were just kind of figuring it out. Again, the, the building the plane as we're flying it. Uh, we were just kind of... We were using kind of basic loudness standards to go by. What's usually, you know, used in, in film, I would think we were somewhere around like minus 18 luffs for everything in, in VR. Um, but then as far as mixing um, for immersive for that those types of products, we were just figuring it out. No one was giving us any specs. It was kind of up to us to figure it out. Yeah, there weren't, wasn't really any direction for that. And the, this only came up because... Uh, we had a few mixers on the team who were starting to mix in Atmos because we had the Atmos rooms and we didn't even know where it was going to live. 
as far as these Atmos mixes of the music library, but we just started playing around with it just to figure out how we were going to work it into our workflow. And it turned out that for, for Quill, for these projects, these VR animations, it worked out very well to mix Atmos and then re-render to binaural. But no, we didn't have any guidelines, really. But what did you determine then worked best? Well, for specifically for the VR animations and music, uh, doing the Atmos mixes and rendering to binaural uh, seemed to really uh, uh, give us a lot of space in those in those total mi- in those final mixes. Um, but there was never, I think, the only other the only other time I mixed natively right to Atmos and used it in a project was for we had a project called. Uh, which you can get into now, it's called Horizon. It's sort of like the Horizon Worlds. It's sort of a social uh, VR environment. And I was mixing some of my music in Atmos and then delivering that in Ambisonic um, format. But there was never there was never a way to get actual Atmos ADM files, you know, into into um, into Horizon or any of the products. Uh, the best I could do was get an Ambisonic file, four channel first first order ambisonic file there yeah so your new album you did in atmos as well right i did yeah and there's a lot of guitars in that album <laughs> there's a lot of guitars it was really inefficient um yeah there's uh i i have some some tracks that are up to six or seven hundred tracks of of guitars just being layered over in each each other yeah it's a little nuts um yeah uh so uh, I did use Atmos. I had, rec- I had mixed my last record, this uh, project called Polyhedron, in Atmos, and that was sort of the first one that I tried. And so this is the the second one, and uh, and it seemed to be uh, a good fit for especially this kind of recording. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, along the lines of say, um, if you've ever heard Steve Reich's different. Uh, not different trains. Electric Counterpoint, which is on the same album as Different Trains. Uh, it's Pat Metheny playing these guitar parts, this guitar piece, and he's just layered over and over again. But I don't think there's even more than fifteen guitar tracks. So, um, so that was a little bit of the inspiration for this, and then I just kind of started going nuts. Let's talk about going nuts and and the reason for it. Every time you layered a new track, would it be a different sound, or was it just a uh, a vibe thing, or is it just to make it bigger, or what? What was the reason for all these tracks? So yeah, but some parts of the, some of the guitar parts seem to be begging f- for a, a bigger presentation, I guess, for lack of a better term. So if there was a, maybe a high arpeggiated part, that sometimes those that was in the background, those seemed to feel like they wanted to have a lot of guitars playing rather than, say, a melody part, which might not be lots of guitars layered. That might be a very a lot fewer. So um, when I would record, usually I would record from three different positions, you know, three different mic positions all at the same time. Uh, and I would, uh, at the very least, record uh, three different guitars. So that would give me nine tracks per uh, part. And then I, once I came back to to mixing it, sometimes those distant parts didn't work. I would take them out or sometimes there were phase problems or whatever and I would kind of go in and tweak those. Um, but the, the, the basic idea was kind of thinking about an orchestra and how 
you know, 30 violins work together and how, how, and they sound bigger than 30 violins, you know, when you're, when you're in, in a room with them. So I was trying to recreate that kind of sound. What would it sound like if there were 30 guitar players in the room? Um, but doing it this way, rather than having 30 guitar players in a room, um, I think gave me the advantage of being able to separate a lot of those uh, parts that worked better for Atmos. I think if I had just done whatever you would do in a room for 30 guitar players, it wouldn't be 30 different microphones. It would probably be a, you know, a stereo pair and maybe maybe a few placed, uh, placed mics. That probably wouldn't give me the control that I wanted to have for the Atmos mix. So, um, yeah, so it was like a very textured thing sometimes, you know. So you went into this thinking about the Atmos mix then? I was, yeah, yeah. Um, because I had done that last record in Atmos, it was definitely on my mind, and, and I was thinking about that, yeah. Did you use any of the Atmos configured reverbs or effects or anything like that? Or were you staying mostly like in, in mono stereo tracks that were placed as objects? Right, yeah. Um, for reverbs, I was using some of the updated reverbs, I think, uh, the uh, Liquid Sonics has Seventh Heaven and Cinematic Rooms, and I think there's one other one, the Plate one. I think they all have a have a seven dot four, seven dot one dot four version of them, I believe, or maybe it's seven one two. Anyway, there is a surround version of them, so I was u- sticking to those usually, and then sometimes the uh, sometimes I would use the Space Designer in Logic Pro too, because that was native. And so I would, I would use those on on bus sends, and those would be um, those would be beds. Usually, I did the reverbs as beds, and then then I had to be selective with so many tracks. I had to be selective about which ones I would use as objects. But uh, what I would end up doing quite often is I would in the in the stereo mix I had created all these track stacks for say there's 50 guitar parts in one track stack. I didn't want to set up different plugins for each one of those single tracks, so I would just put them in a track stack and, and, and try and treat them as, in, as one as best I could first. And once I had my, the way I worked was I had a stereo mix first, and then, um, then I took those stems and put them in and, and mixed those in, in, in the uh, Atmos session. I think it would have been unwieldy otherwise, yeah. I was going to ask you how it folded down, but you didn't care if you have a stereo version as well, right? Right, right, yeah. You know, I've heard of a lot of people going, doing both at the same time now, and I could see maybe getting to that point. uh, But so far, I'm doing, usually I'm doing a stereo version first and then then doing the Atmos. And and that does change some things. Like maybe I'll change the processing uh, after I've bounced out those stems and just go, oh, that sounds maybe too compressed for the Atmos version. I'll go back and maybe rebounce it and for whatever reason, yeah. But it it does seem to change things. The more I'm working in Atmos, and I'm by no means any kind of expert, but the more I'm doing it, the more I'm learning about the space that's available. And it's really changing things, yeah. How long did it take you to do this album? Um, it took about a year working off and on. I, I recorded most of it over the course of six to eight weeks, I think. And then, uh, yeah, then I think after that, it was just a matter of taking my time with the mixes. And uh, it, 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 
has been done for maybe three or four months, and I've just been no a little bit longer maybe, but I've been slowly releasing it. But yeah, I think overall it took about about a year. Um, the songs, some of the some of the titles, I had different versions of them before. And then as I was recording that last record, the Polyhedron record, I came upon this idea of the layering guitars. I, I had done it in one of those songs on, on that record. And uh, and so it just kind of evolved from having the, a couple of songs that were kind of rough versions, having this idea of the multi-guitar layers. And then, and then, then it was just a lot of work just to redo those songs with all the, all the new guitars layering. I listened to the samples on your website, and I didn't quite grasp the fact that you had so many tracks, but I have to say, in retrospect, it didn't sound like it. It sounded very organized, and it's so easy, as as you know, to, when you have that many tracks, to, to just come up with a cacophony of, of sound rather than something that is very distinct. But that wasn't the case. It just sounded thick, and it was like, oh, there's a lot going on here, but it makes sense because it's one element rather than a bunch of elements fighting each other. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that that was, yeah, that thanks. And that was a trick to get, um, especially um, with very, there was no strumming really on this record. It's just all single picking. And so uh, getting the timing, I think it was what took me the most is making sure that I wasn't getting too much of a chorusing effect between all the guitars and really just trying to, um, sometimes I wanted that, but then sometimes I wanted very, very um, tight uh, rhythms. It sounds like there's a lot of arpeggiation on the songs that I listen to anyway. Was that electronic or was that, did you play that in? Oh, I played everything in. Uh, there, I think there's there's only, I think the only electronics that I used was on the very last song, I had taken some samples from that same song, and then I ran them through some of my modular gear, and and then spat something out and made that the intro and outro. But apart from that, no, everything else was was pretty much just played in. Yeah, you have a lot of different experiences now in in immersive spatial audio, uh, in a number of different distribution areas, more so than most people I talk to. So the question is. Where do you see this going? Wow, that's a that's a great question. I think I, I think it's really hard to not look at Apple as kind of leading the way on this stuff. I mean, they've kind of led the way on Atmos. I don't think anyone would be making these Atmos mixes if it wasn't for Apple pushing on it so hard and then having AirPods. But you know, they're going to be releasing this new headset uh, in a few months. I think that'll. Um, I think that'll be a big a big indicator is where some of this will be going. If I had to guess, I would say, you know, that we'll probably all be using some sort of glasses in the future, maybe instead of phones. And hopefully we have a great audio experience to match that. And, and given what they've done as far as their their uh and I don't work for Apple. I just, you know, this is just like, just looking, reading the tea leaves, it just seems like they're a little bit ahead of the curve on all this. But seeing what they've done as far as matching your your watch with your with your phone, with your AirPods, that's probably going to all get integrated into whatever this headset or glasses thing is going to be. Um, I think that, you know, we're already seeing people enjoying 
spatial audio with their Apple products and starting to understand. I mean, there's a lot of confusing terms out there, but I think people are starting to understand that this is going to sound better. It's, you know, uh, it sounds better than, I mean, I, I remember working on games, you know, in 2010, 2013, 14. And, you know, the big argument then was, are people even listening to their phones while they play a game? I mean, that was literally an argument. Like, I had to fight for the idea that audio mattered um, because some people do listen to the audio and it's it's a measurement of quality for their, their product. Uh, and now that's not a question anymore pe- because of AirPods. You know, uh, people are always listening to their phones. They might be watching a video and then they're playing Angry Birds or whatever. I dated myself, but I don't, whatever the <laughs> Clash of Clans, no, that's even old. Um, so, um, so I think that, you know, my point being is that we're getting used to the idea of quality audio because of some of these products and, and everyone's following suit. You know, uh, I think Samsung has some earbuds now that are Atmos ready, I believe. And we're just seeing that start to happen across the board. And it's going to eventually become important to people that things sound good. Um, so I, I hope that that translates into whatever this next wave of, of glasses or computing experience might be. It certainly is in games. I mean, you can see that with, you know, um, whatever the new console games, you know, like this last God of War game sounded really terrific. And um, you can just see the bar getting raised on on, on uh, all these products. A little off the subject, what's one thing that people don't know about what you do or don't understand that you wish they did? <laughs> There's so much, really. <laughs> um Gosh, that's a really good question. Uh, um, if I have to pick one, uh, I think maybe just the, and it's not really a technical thing, but it's it's maybe, and I think we all do this if we work in audio. It's the attention to detail that we all have in our in our ears when we're listening to things. I don't think people realize what we're always listening for, what, what, what's important, um, what sounds good, what doesn't sound good, how to develop that. Um, maybe people are, 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 are going to start to realize this a bit, a bit more. I think people do realize it on a subconscious level. I've always said that, that I think people know when something sounds good or bad, and they might not even say, you know, that doesn't sound good, but they may not want to listen to it again or their their opinion like especially in the world of games if something sounds terrible to them while they're playing a game they may not say i hate that sound but they might not play the game again so uh, yeah I, I guess my answer w- would probably be just the the amount of the amount of of thought and 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 i guess training that goes into to listening and and thinking about how things sound uh especially in our world uh not to go on another tangent but you know if i go into a restaurant and the music is so loud i can't have a conversation i walk out of the restaurant i wish more people were like that you know and maybe more aware of 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 the their sounds around them you know it's interesting because the nab did a number of of surveys and studies and they go back some years, the 80s, 90s, about 
audio on the radio. And what they discovered was if the audio is bad, people will not listen. They'll change the station. And that includes if it's too compressed, if it's too distorted. So as soon as that happened, then you know, radio program directors started to look at their audio signal path a little more and say, okay, wait, we, we better change this or else we're going to lose listeners. doesn't matter so much today, but it just goes to show that, the, yes, your, your underlying argument or it's an underlying argument for what you're talking about, you know, about people understand and maybe subconsciously. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think people can't necessarily articulate it, but um, unless they've been been in the business or trained or went to music school or, or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I think everyone hears, hears it and has a reaction to it, for sure. What's the best piece of advice? Could be business, it could be music, that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you. I get it's something I kind of go back to. And so it's very simple, but I think just being persistent and and that kind of covers a lot of areas, being persistent in and and creating what you want to create, being persistent in trying to find gigs or trying to learn. You know, I think learning is just such a huge part of what we do. We're always learning. I'm constantly learning and I feel as though I want to be persistent in that. Yeah, I mean, without getting too too lengthy, I, I would say, you know, being persistent and, and all those things can only help you. I don't think it's going to hurt. You can find out more about Dren and his latest album at drenmcdonald.com. That's Dren McDonald, D-R-E-N-M-C. D-O-N-A-L-D, Dren McDonald, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.